Hello, welcome to Time to Say Goodbye. It is the 23rd of January. You'll be hearing this on the morning of the 24th. Uh, I am here with Tyler. Tyler, how you doing? Good, dude. How are you doing? I'm all right. You know, it uh, seems like the year is speeding by already. I don't know what it is, but I think now it's just like I'm at that point of life where every year feels like three months and then... <laughs> At some point, like my kids are going to graduate, go to college, and hopefully time slows down at that point. But I don't know. It's like everything's flying by type of thing. Yeah. Um, how, good. how are you doing? Good. Yeah, about the same. I had, uh, I feel, I felt like January was like kind of a light month, and then it's like it's, it's not, and then February is fast approaching. And yeah, no, I'm sorry. I'm in the same boat. How much longer are you on paternity leave for? For the listeners who don't know, uh, Tyler has a young child at this point and has been on paternity leave. How much more do you get? Yeah, so I was on technically my paternity leave was last semester. Uh, I teach college and then uh, this semester I'm on sabbatical um, for just research stuff, which is like still uh, mostly because of, you know, the new kid, just childcare stuff. So, um, but yeah, I don't go back till September. I start teaching again. Oh, cool. Are you yeah. feeling like this? Have you started to r realize the childcare crisis in America? Have you started to feel it a bit? Oh, yeah, dude. It's it's like so And Maine is a state where it's, I mean, it's very expensive like it is everywhere, but it's it feels somewhat doable to find childcare. Um, and it's still impossible and crazy expensive. Yeah, it's nuts. Yeah, I think that that's the, it's like one of those things where I feel like if the Democrats were they they do do things right but that if they focused on it that it might be an interesting thing for them to do just because a lot of the childcare stuff is is pretty popular like even stuff like okay. free lunch for example is a very very popular democrat idea across the board yep and um you know you saw people like Ilhan Omar in Minnesota for example pushing it right as and I think that was pretty calculated on her part yeah. Uh, and let me tell you something. You're not quite, a, you're not of the age yet, but you will be soon where you have to like buy these little folding lunch boxes and fill it up with various healthy things. Yeah. And it sucks. <laughs> it's, it sucks <laughs> so bad. <laughs> like they come back, it's disgusting. You realize your kid hasn't eaten any of the healthy stuff. You know, there's like a Smearing torn open up. bag of. Yeah, it's fruit snacks in there and everything else is just slimy and disgusting to the point oh. where you dread opening it. Um, and now we have free lunch here in Berkeley for all the kids. Our kid does it. And it is like, it's just amazing. You know, it's <laughs> That's awesome. like, well, and all the kids do it or it, almost all the kids do it. Right. And yeah. so it's almost like a school uniform type of thing, which I'm yeah, generally yeah. in favor of where uh, hey, that's actually a really good policy from like, not just the food reasons, but also like the sort of like cultural and political reasons. It seems like. Really yeah. Sensible. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh it's a, it's only a positive. And if they're like, we're going to do like a property tax increase or whatever to keep funding free school lunch, I would just be like, I, I wouldn't even think about it. I'd be like, yeah, whatever. Totally. <laughs> you know, like anything to do it so that I don't have to open this slimy lunchbox at the end of the day. It's so disgusting. Yeah. Um, I do like the, um, I love cooking. And so like, I'm usually in charge of like food related things in our household, but I'm also like deeply forgetful. So I'm certain I will like forget that the lunchbox has stuff in it. And then it will like, one of them will accrue mold and I'll find like a oh six day God. old, you know? Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. 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 It's, uh, 
it's nothing is grosser than opening up a Chaz lunchbox. I'll just put it that way. Um, and the healthier you make it, the grosser it gets, right? Yeah, like it's, I, I understand why people just went to Lunchables at some point yeah. because they can just toss the plastic tray and um, never have to think about it. But uh, all right, so we have two topics today. The first is that we're going to continue our book tour of apocalypse slash future science fiction, eco future type of stuff. Today's book I was actually quite interested in mm -hmm. by the time I finished it, less so at the beginning, but we can talk about that. That's going to yeah. be the second half of the show. But the first half of the show, and I don't think that the show should just be things that you tweet about, right? But I did find it this week to be quite interesting, which is that <laughs> um, there was an article that came out in New York Magazine by Allison P. Davis, who is a writer I quite admire. Um, the piece was about polyamory. It was sort of a guide to polyamorous adulthood and you had a specific take on it that i found quite interesting now the article itself is really sort of like one of the i don't know new york magazine's very good at these things they're good at packaging ideas and sort of saying this is the zeitgeist and then some portion of you know people who read that magazine which is not that different than people who read any magazine yeah. which is just kind of like you know upper middle class uh educated liberals um that they say oh wow you know everyone's doing this thing right <laughs> right or this is the new thing and then they give you a bunch of sort of digestible ideas about it and that that's like a good magazine package and so this is not any shade to the author of new york magazine in itself i don't really know why i feel the need to perfunctorily say that i just think allison davis is like i don't want her to take the piece is good like from the point of view of like it. yeah 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 but so what's the what 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 is your gripe with polyamory? <laughs> yeah, I mean so I guess I should clarify first. My gripe is not with like polyamory as such, but just the glut of media discourse about it, I think. Um okay. I mean there's the New York magazine was like the big splashy one. Um a lot of it has been centered around this book, um, more by Molly Roden Winter, which just came out. There was a really actually quite good New Yorker piece about it that kind of offered a sort of soft left critique of the book in ways that were interesting. Um, but yeah, it's been all over the news, Washington Post, Financial Times, uh, NPR. Um, it's, it's sort of been everywhere. Um, and it's been slow in coming. There's been, uh, you know, in succession, there's obviously sort of a, a polyamory pot plot line. Um, also in White Lotus, uh, there's, there's a kind of open marriage thing going on. So this has been, I think, growing in the discourse. Um, and, you know, I think, so I tweeted about it as like the sort of, you know, final realization of bourgeois individualism, uh, which definitely irritated some people, I think. And I think people took me to be complaining about uh, like thinking polyamory is degenerate or gross. And I'm like deeply uninterested in that, the sort of morals of it. I, I don't care at all. I don't think it's an issue for uh, like, I, I am very much of the opinion that, you know, however one people want to conduct their sex lives if they're consenting adults. Like I, I don't, I don't give a shit, but what I'm interested in is, I guess the like the media push around it um, really predominantly focused on sort of rich, you know, New York City liberals. Um, and I, I guess what bothers me about it is the kind of new ageness that is like really saturated through at least the media polyamory discourse where, you know, all of the chatter is about, uh, you know, self-actualization and finding yourself and sort of realizing your inner truth and journey and so on and so forth. Um, and, you know, the people interviewed in that New York magazine piece very much talk and kind of psychobabble. Um, and that's kind of why I'm interested in it. I think we are, um, 
you know, this is something Michelle Goldberg pointed out in the Times recently, but I think we are in a moment of sort of a return to the new age of the 1970s. Um, and I think what bothers me about that in particular is that um, that moment in the 1970s when new age kind of flourished was a response to a sort of feeling that we can't fix any of our problems, that, you know, inflation is going through the roof, that we're in the middle of a cold war, that we have no power to stop. Um, we're in the aftermath and, and uh, you know, tail end of Vietnam. And, you know, New Age was kind of a turn inward because, you know, external circumstances felt so immovable and untractable. Right. Politically. And I think there's something to that here as well, where it's, you know, a, a weird turn inward, a focus on the self um, at a moment when a lot of our, you know, problems feel intractable. Um, I'm a big fan of uh, Christopher Lash, and he wrote a book called Haven in the Heartless World, um, written in the late 70s, which was about the family. And his take was pretty similar about, um, he also wrote about open marriages. And, you know, one of the things Lash said, not just in that book, but frequently is that, you know, um, narcissism, self-obsession, a focus on sort of our own inner journeys um, is, is, should be understood as actually survivalism. It shouldn't be understood as narcissism in the way we often use the term. It's kind of a defense mechanism when the pressures of the outside world feel impossible, you know? Um, and so it just seems to me that this is a, a weird glorification um, in, you know, in, in media spaces um, of uh, a kind of, you know, weird return to the new age that I'm not sure is uh, that is being sold to us as politics, which was, I think, the crux of my frustration. Right, right. right yeah. 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 This is like it's, yeah. you know, it's breaking up the nuclear family and it's political and it's left and it's radical and so on. And it's very obviously not, you know, um, if right. or at least no more so than, you know, um, other forms of, you know relationship organization but yeah anyway I'll, can i can i say something as somebody born in 1979 yeah which is that basically we're drilled i think our entire lives if we grew up in progressive areas which i grew up in north carolina but in a very progressive town within north carolina that basic that what you were told was uh some version of that politics should be let people do what they want right mm -hmm. that there is like a well you know that was how you were sold this didn't really happen when i was growing up because i think still pretty homophobic times yeah. uh but you know like well if people want to do that then let them do that it's none of your business why would you ever bother yourself with any of that and that's sort of been my approach to a lot of politics just because i can't undo years and years of indoctrination yeah. into this like well if it, it's like kind of like metastasized into many things and then in the it becomes sort of like a Ben and Jerry's if it's if it's not fun, why do it type of mentality, yeah, yeah. right? Like this idea of the self as this thing that needs to indulge in things that are fun. And what it ends up being is like a loss of a sense of responsibility to one's community and also a sort of childlike uh, engagement in all things, right? Like uh, we should always be seeking out pleasures and wonders. Um, and if we're not doing that, then we are sort of soul dead yeah. and there's films that came out that reflected some of that right if you watch something like american beauty for example or the ice storm right like mm -hmm. these are as ice storm has like a whole polyamory subplot to it where they do a key party that that movie i think was actually quite condemning of it but that mm -hmm. there's this idea that there's a suburban type of life that is dead right that yeah, there's yeah. a pursuit of getting like a BMW and a four bedroom house and moving out to 
Chappaqua are moving out to Scarsdale, that that is dead, right? And that mm -hmm. um, the when people feel this soul death, um, that they will seek out kind of easy pleasures and that at some point they will try and justify that to themselves, um, which is, I think, slightly what you're saying here, right? Yeah. I, I, I largely agree with all of that. And I only bring it up to say that I know that you are not somebody who is going to say that this stuff is gross. And as somebody who myself is conditioned to think all things, eh, like whatever, I'm never going to kink shame somebody. Yeah. I got to say, I, I kind of find <laughs> polyamory to be a little bit gross. <laughs> like, and I don't think that it's because of the idea of it, right? Like people should be able to make their own thing. But when I read this article, I was really grossed out by all these people in it. I was like, I was like, gross, you know, and I, was, um, and I think that part of it was that this idea that you started to hint at, which is that, look, the people who are interested in this are going to generally be upper middle class professional people um, and that they are trying to create a idea that has always existed. As long as spouses have existed, people have grown bored with their sexual partners and sought out new things, right? Like it's not some new thing. Barbara Ehrenreich, for example, wrote this book, uh, Fear of Falling. We referred to it a lot on the show. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the book is about sort of the self-help 70s and the new age 70s and like the sort of ways in which a upper middle class will continually reproduce a type of quasi-intellectual thinking that justifies their bad behavior and allows them to act selfishly at all times, right? I mean, the frustration I have is with the assumption that um, anything you like is fine. De desire is self-legitimating. Like the fact that you want something makes it not only okay, but that you like deserve it. And you should focus on that at the expense of like, what may be other people's happiness or, you know, your community responsibilities or things like that, you know? Um, and so I do, uh, I, what strikes me as especially um, frustrating, I think, um, about the sort of media polyamory discourse in the moment in particular, is its focus on the sort of upper middle class, in particular, because these are people who are having their cake and eating it too, right? Like marriage is becoming increasingly unaffordable. Childcare is becoming increasingly unaffordable. Being a parent is becoming increasingly unaffordable. Um, and the class of people that disproportionately benefits um, and is able to afford all of those things are like the same class of people that are like, ah, the, you know, the nuclear family who cares, or this is boring, blah, blah, blah. Meanwhile, tons of people are excluded from marriage and the advantages it, it affords both, you know, psychological and otherwise. And so uh, I guess there's something, you know, as people around the country um, talk about wanting to be parents and not being able to afford it or talk about, you know, the impossibility of getting married and so on, there's just something really perverse to me um, about, uh, you know, this sort of class of overeducated, you know, coastal elite people who are, uh, you know, poo-pooing the very thing that is unaffordable to so many other people, you know. Um, and I guess part of me too just sort of feels like, you know, um, I think there are certain habits of mind that make for good <laughs> citizens, for lack of a less like conservative sounding way to put it. Um, and, you know, the idea that we should do whatever we want and follow our own inner journey and blah, blah, blah. I'm not sure that's like a, a and we shouldn't have to sacrifice. There shouldn't be boundaries. I'm not sure that's a good habit of mind. I mean, so many of our problems are 
problems precisely because no one wants to give up anything they want, right? Like, I mean, right, if you, just, right. you know, I teach environmental studies. If you look at the climate crisis, like, well, people are like, oh, I believe in climate change. Like, who the fuck doesn't believe in climate change? I mean, except for a few Republicans, but they're like, but I, you know, I, I do want to have my car. And I do want to do X and I do want to do Y and I do want to have my stake and I don't want to have any limits to my consumption. Right. Um, and it just seems to me that, you know, polyamory stuff is that there's like a constellation of ideas that are ostensibly progressive that are, in fact, all oriented toward consumption and, and growth and all right, of these individuals that I think are right. not pro-social, you know. The thing that I always assume that this I think that this piece confirms is that it's usually one person who wants to do this and they convince the other person that they, that the other person yeah, yeah, should. Yeah. And my thing is always like, look, the guy who, or the girl or whatever, the person, the partner who is not into it and who, whose idea, who basically it wasn't their idea. I never believe them when they say they're cool with it. You know, totally, I yeah. never believe them. And like, maybe that is reactionary or regressive. I'm sorry. I just don't believe you. You know, my job yeah. is basically to sit around and basically say some things are bullshit and some things are not. And uh, my years of training in that job, whether you think I'm good or bad at it, I will just say that one has to trust their instincts. My instincts are almost always to like when I was reading this piece and they're talking about you know, the other partner, they were cool with it too. I'm like, no, they weren't. <laughs> I don't believe them at all. They're just saying that, right? Yeah. Um, and it's because they understand that at some level, they're going to have to give up something that they don't want to give, which at this point, I think is probably their spouse, right? Or the family that they have or whatever, and that they don't want to to do it. And that there is all these Mac, the, the the article for those who haven't read it, we'll put it in the show notes, is uh, structured as tips for how to make your way through it and some of them were basically like how to be polite about after you you know have a tryst or whatever right like after you've stepped out on your partner and everyone's cool with it here are the ways to talk about it and one of them was like well don't be too specific don't gloat <laughs> everything like that and i was like that seems to indicate that not everyone is that cool <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think most of these accounts are somebody who's like partner brings it up and then they're like, oh, OK, you know, and I mean, I'm not going to uh, I'm writing about that book more that came out, so I won't give the whole thing away. But I would encourage anyone to like read it uh, because it's insane. And the way people are talking about it is nuts. And I think the um, the sense that this is like an equitable, uh, like two sided endeavor, I think, is just like the the lie to that is very much given if you just read the book um, and the sort of it, the, the gap between what the book is actually like and says and like how the media is covering it is substantial. Right. There's this huge, uh, the larger question then is, um, well, what, it, and it's one that actually I think has to do with the book that we read and the idea of solar punk, right. And yeah. which is the great, and we'll get to that in a bit here, but the, larger question that I had about all of this is um, what do we do with these politics? I don't think that it takes a genius to see that this is downstream from a lot of the girl boss politics that we saw, mm -hmm. right? Which is that, um, or, or uh, an idea that there is a perversion of a type of equality politics or egalitarian politics that essentially just confirms that a small population of people can act selfishly and always, justify it in any way possible that it is in fact progressive for people who are from our women or for minority population to act basically as 
sociopathically as possible. This is not to say that everyone who is polyamorous is no, sociopathic. No, no. I'm just saying that that is sort of the idea of the justification behind it. Like it is very much the, if it's not fun, why do it? Right. Which is the stupidest thing in the world. Right. Like, I mean, changing diapers isn't fun. Right. Uh, like teaching your kid to read is kind of fun, but it's also, you know, can be quite frustrating. So what do you do? You just give up you yeah. know? <laughs> or like disciplining your child or like making sure that they understand boundaries is definitely not fun. Right. But like, you're supposed to just not do it, you know, like, because it's not fun. And that this type of thing is really, uh, it's not just in the, it's not just in the, like people's sexual ideas it's also in parenting now right and that's sort of what aaron Reich yeah. cr criticized that uh there is this you can do whatever you want and you can justify it as i'm doing this for my child or you can justify it as like this is my child's like true self and mm -hmm. i don't know i think that most parents after a while you start to realize that your child doesn't really have a true self that needs to be unlocked just as you don't have a true self that needs to be unlocked right we are people who are sort of built by context and we are people who should exist in a society in an ethical and interest and like, you know, conscientious way. And then all this stuff proves to do is try and blow everything out by using whatever scraps of like kind of politics that we all agree are agree upon that are on hand. And the way that I deal with it is that I'm just not your friend. Right. Yeah. But you don't have to explain to me why I'm regressive for <laughs> For finding your selfishness to be a little bit unappealing, right? Yeah. And I'm sorry, it has nothing to do with the polyamory part of it. You know, like I just think you're going to act selfishly in every situation that actually matters. Yeah, right. Yeah, like that's like the yeah, polyamory part doesn't matter, but like when it comes to like resources for kids in schools or something like that, you're also going to act selfishly there. I think people on Twitter didn't believe me when I said this, but I genuinely give zero shits about like polyamory as a thing in itself. I don't care. I don't think it's a moral issue as long as everyone's like on the, on the same page. I just, I do think it like speaks to a kind of habit of mind that if his, if it is generalized is, is really bad. And you're, and you're right. Like, I, I don't think it's just quarantine to the bedroom. I think that kind of way of thinking, like the sort of me first find my actualization is going to, you know, whatever we're voting on, whether we want our taxes to go up for a new library. Like I, I tend to think, you know, I don't know. I tend to think that that attitude isn't just in a vacuum and it tends to infuse most parts of, of someone's life. So yeah, I don't know. I mean, and the thing I would add to, you know, some people pointed out to me that there are, um, you know, there's disability communities, for example, where polyamory is really popular because care is really difficult, for example. And right. it's, you know, people are poor and there's not, like there, there are and there are cultures around the world that practice polyamory. Um, and, you know, so it's not like a moral judgment in itself. But I, I just like I don't want to have to hear about these, you know, espresso martini sipping Brooklynites. You know, I just I don't right, right, right. The, yeah. the, the new age, like it, it is a critique of new age, not even new age. It is a critique of a type of self-actualization, uh, upper middle class politics, which, you know, uh, I think that any good leftist should resist uh, yeah. much, just as Barbara Ehrenreich spent much of her career really <laughs> criticizing this type of thing. Like Barbara Ehrenreich is a genius for that reason, because she could see it, right? And if you read uh, Fear of Falling, then, you know, you'd see it there specifically in the childcare stuff, right? Which is that like, how do you maintain your class advantage or your class privileges? Well, you uh, 
make sure that your child keeps every advantage that you have. And how do you justify that to yourself when you're faced with other kids who are not as advantageous? Well, you just make up a bunch of fucking psychobabble that you throw around <laughs> to use to justify it to yourself and that you talk about it all the time. You join communities where everyone feels the same way, right? And that, I don't know, that kind of feels like what's going here. I want to read a part of this piece for you and then we Please. can move on from it, which is, uh, this is one of the... Um, Oh, I don't know. I guess it would say like the narratives that are put in there. And uh, first person, my husband and I never planned to tell our children about our open marriage. But seven years after we took our first fumbling step towards non-monogamy, I got off a plane to find a series of text messages from my then 13-year-old son, Daniel. Mom, he wrote, are you and dad in an open marriage? My husband, Stuart, had left his OkCupid profile open on his laptop and Daniel had seen it. I found a spot against the wall of the Houston airport to call him. When Daniel picked up, I began by telling him how happy his father and I were and how we were always honest with each other. But Daniel's main question surprised me. I get that dad has time for it, he asked. But when do you, uh, when do, you do it? This, process, this question brought me relief. Like many mothers with a full-time job, I'd worry that I wasn't spending enough time with my children. And using precious non-working hours to go on dates made me feel particularly guilty. Here was proof that in Daniel's mind, at least, I was around so often he couldn't fathom my managing to be anywhere else. That is crazy, by the way, that that is like the justification. Like, no, yeah, yeah, he's yeah. saying something else, you know? <laughs> he's not saying, oh, you know, you're such a good mother. So I can't long. imagine like where, like, like late, like, you know, like you gotta, you gotta think a little here. Daniel, the eldest of my two boys, had always been eminently reasonable. As an infant, he cried only when he needed something. And in elementary school, Daniel's teachers often commented on his extraordinary comfort level with adults and his ability to mediate conflicts amongst his peers. With him, I had always learned leaned towards honesty. I had told him about my limited drug use as a teenager, my fraught relationships with eating and body image, and my family's history of mental illness. But speaking to my son about my sex life felt far more difficult. I don't do it very often, I lied. She goes on in this piece to then explain that Daniel said he was cool with it, but later as an adult, he told, tells her that actually he wasn't cool with it. <laughs> and that he learned to be cool with it in adulthood. And that's totally understandable. People have different relationships as they grow. But I don't know. I just found this to be so emblematic of the whole thing, which is like this misunderstanding of what the child is actually saying, right? Saying, totally. oh, actually, I'm so successful and I'm so busy all the time that in fact you know my child thought oh mom you're so you know like when do you have time to do that and there's no reflection at this point on should i change any of the particulars of that relationship right or, or like my work schedule or any of these things right it is literally just can i squeeze this other desire into an entire menu of desires that dictate my life and um Again, I will say very clearly, I don't care about the sexual whatever part. I just find this type of person to be quite gross. Yeah. <laughs> That's basically the long and short of it. I'm just like, no, we're not going to be friends, you know, because totally. <laughs> I know when I have a conversation with you, this is the only thing you're going to talk about. You're not <laughs> going to let me talk. You're going to talk you know, you're just going to talk the whole time. I'm going to have to hear about all these gross encounters that you have with these gross other people. 
And I just am going to sit there bored the entire time. And I'm going to drive home and I'm going to be like, I'm never talking to that person again. <laughs> you know? like, that's basically the long and short of it for me. I don't know. It, it doesn't Dude, seem to uh, that's, uh, that anecdote's actually from that book more. And it's the whole book is like that where it's like oh, shit happens. And then she interprets it in a fucking bananas way. It's, that, <laughs> that's not at all what happens here. And yeah, dude, it's, it's, I mean, I can't emphasize enough. Like, it, people are going to read my thing about it and they're going to be like, this guy's a prudish dick. And it's like, just read the book. The book's fucking insane. Like any, <laughs> like any normal human being who reads the books would be like, what the fuck is going on here? Oh, oh my God. Yeah. Like the, it is amazing. I, uh, like, when do you do it? And I had been worried. I haven't been spending enough time with my children. And then, oh, oh my God. But you know, in the end, what it proved was that I was great. <laughs> and, you know, the fact that he was, I didn't actually even think about whether he might actually be cool with it or not be cool with it. I just assumed he was cool with it because, of course, everything that what a nine year old says is like totally like on the level. <laughs> they can totally, they can totally uh, process this whole thing and they can come to a mature conclusion that, you know, I need to be me, right? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh my god anyway that's enough about that i don't know man like i i think one of those things where i feel like maybe living in maine is quite uh freeing is that i don't know if you're surrounded by these people maybe you are maybe portland maine is a little portland a little bit but i'm in i'm outside of yeah and, and, and no like my my neighbors are just you know i have like a five minute conversation with them about the patriots and that's yeah yeah no yeah, so i'm not yeah, surrounded by this yeah. That sounds relieving. I think that once you get into, uh, you know, going to kids' birthday parties and stuff like that, that you'll start to see how ubiquitous this type of thinking is amongst the educated yeah. upper middle class. And um, I don't know. I don't. I don't think it's reactionary to say that the core, the mid, the core of it is just can I act selfishly, right? Um, and uh, you know, whatever. There no, are much totally worse right. iterations of it than polyamory. That doesn't mean that the general ethos is correct. All right, moving on. Okay, so for book club this week, we read a book called the uh, what is Psalm it? For the a Psalm Bill. for the Wild Built, and it's by a author named Becky Chambers. Um, I found this book to be actually quite fascinating. Um actually more so than the Octavia Butler thing as a idea, right? Yeah. Um, because it is part of, I'm, I'm going to introduce it a little bit. It is a, a book in which I don't know how to describe it. It's basically, there's a, it's a, it's a vision of the future. Um, there's something called the factory age that has passed and that basically we now live in uh, kind of arc. It reminded me of SimCity. Did you ever play that? Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, in SimCity at some point, like you just start building arcologies and there are these <laughs> bubbles that, that house everybody. You no longer need to like worry about streets and, you know, <laughs> everyone just lives in a bubble. You know? yeah. And so uh, the city is like the bubble and then outside it's like wilderness and villages. And it's kind of like what the vision of, oh, I don't know, like, you know, if you go to like sort of hardcore urbanists or something like that, they'll start showing you, hey, you know, if we built cities more densely then everything else could be wilderness. And they talk right. about like, you know, like farming villages in Japan and stuff like that, where everything is organized in this type of way. 
Uh, and that the book is about this woman, or no, not a woman. This book is about a non-binary character, right? Um, who uses they, them pronouns and is a tea monk. And the mm -hmm. idea, uh, their name is Dex and they sort of travel through the wilderness doing tea ceremonies essentially for people that help them with their problems. And then Dex at some point meets a robot. That's a whole book. Almost nothing happens in this book. Totally, <laughs> it's like amazingly plotless. Um, and it's part of a science fiction um, genre called solar punk. Do you want to do you want to do you want to just tell us a little bit about solar punk? I am not like a main dude of solar punk, uh, but, you know, a lot of, I think, as I understand it, a lot of solar punk is sort of um, focused on a future in which is, you know, like solar implies sort of green and sustainable and uh, like not uh, just a dystopian hellscape. Um, so kind of like a clean ener energy futurism, you know? Um, right. And yeah, I think the, I mean, that's one of the reasons why I was interested in this book and thought it would be fun to talk about. I mean, one of the things we talked about last week is the way that so much um, sort of dystopianism feels uh, really hegemonic in science fiction. And we're just, uh, we are constantly beset with this vision of just, you know, walled communities and hellscapes and so on. And I think, you know, just as uh, not quite a thought experiment, but as just an exercise in imagining uh, like a future that doesn't take that particular form, I think the book's really interesting, you know? Right, right. So like Solar Punk, I was, I'm reading from that Wikipedia here. As a science fiction literary subgenre and art movement, solar punk works to address how the future might look if human, humanity succeeded in solving major contemporary challenges with an emphasis on sustainability, human impact on the environment, and addressing climate change and pollution. Especially as a subgenre, it is aligned with cyberpunk derivatives and may borrow elements from utopian and fantasy genres. Now, one thing I thought was interesting about solar punk in general is that it is essentially kind of agreeing with the idea that technology might be able to solve climate change, right? And I think that's a very mm -hmm. interesting way to start off from it, which is that actually we can solve this if we're just a little bit better. And perhaps if we, you know, start developing the arcologies in SimCity. Um, when I was a high schooler in debate, we ran this plan called the OTEC. And it was this, we had found this, so this is an old argument, but, you know, it's based on the science fiction book in which everybody lives on floating platforms in the sea. And they uh, subsist off spirulina, which is like, you know, some sort of microbe, I think, that exists down in deep water currents or something like that. All the energy yeah, comes sure. from deep ocean currents and everybody, you hop from OTEC to OTEC and they, they somehow like self-propagate, which I don't remember how, right? Like, but like an OTEC will like, it's almost like a bacteria where like suddenly there's two of them and then you go off to the next OTEC. Um but yeah, I don't know. I, I, like, I, I found it interesting in the sense that it is this idea of the future in which we have solved all these problems through a mix of self-sacrifice and technology and that it is not, it is in some ways apocalyptic in the sense that the apocalypse will happen if we don't do all these things, but it is a sunny version of it where actually, no, we succeeded, we fixed these things, which is not I, you would think the ideal place for fiction, which is just like, well, what if everyone, what if everything was fine, right? That's not a good place yeah. to start a novel, but I don't know. I found it interesting for that reason. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a really excellent point. And one of the things that's sort of interesting about it is like suburban isn't the right word, but it's, I mean, it kind of almost relates to what we were just talking about. Like a lot of the drama is this, you know, Dex is a person who lives in, um, if not quite a utopian, at least like a well-functioning society where people have food and shelter and, you know, 
pretty good times. Uh, and yet she's like very unsatisfied. Um, and yet at the same time, the book isn't just sort of um, a boring sort of journey of self-enlightenment or anything like that, you know? Um, but yeah, it's really, um, it's definitely an odd and sort of strange book within the broader corpus of particularly, I think, more recent um, fiction about the sort of environment uh, or, or climate or whatever. I mean, one of the things I'm, I'm personally interested in is the sort of depiction of wilderness. Um, you know, when I teach the book, this is something we talk about a lot. And I think, um, you know, wilderness is something that has a really interesting history as an idea. I think we assume that it's a sort of stable concept that's persisted across time. But until like the 19th century, we more or less thought, like at least in the West, that the wilderness was gross and dangerous. And it wasn't like a place you would want to go voluntarily. And then as right. we urbanized over the 19th century, people get nostalgic for the wilderness. So they have to like leave the city to go to Montana Montana to recharge their batteries and get in touch with nature or whatever. But that modern conception of wilderness is like the national parks is really, really new. And one of the things that I think is interesting about this book as she sort of, um, you know, gets sick of this kind of suburbanized life in, in the city um, and leaves for the wilderness is some of that's like recaptured. She's very afraid of um, sort of wild spaces. And I mean, a huge part of the book is just, um, seeing the wilderness through that kind of lens, even as she's fascinated by it. I don't know. I think it's, it's an interesting book. Um, I, you know, it's well enough written, but I just think as a kind of exercise and a different sort of science fiction, it's, it's really compelling. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I hadn't really read a book like it before, honestly. And I think that as a, you know, just as somebody who is interested in different forms of fiction, that it was interesting to me to actually see this, uh, we don't understand why Dex is dissatisfied with life in the city, like you said, but we do also understand that life in the city is good, right? Like yeah, it's great. Yeah. Everyone's happy in the cities, right? And that when she, I'm sorry, when they go from uh, town to town, village to village, they're pretty, like the people there are pretty happy too, right? There's no yeah, major yeah. sense of conflict. And eventually we come to, this is not spoiling anything in the book but much like look, there's nothing to spoil in this book because nothing happens in the book literally nothing actually, happens like, now. <laughs> i think that i read some of the criticism in the book and they're like nothing happens and i was like i kind of enjoyed it in that way it reminded me of like a science fiction version of like uh one of these uh you know modern novels where nothing happens except the writer goes to the grocery store or something like that right yeah. <laughs> it was, was kind of like that and it's um, short it doesn't like overstay its welcome. very very it's like, short right yeah. right and i would say it's like 115 pages long or something like that 40 of the pages is basically dex just struggling with getting their uh cart over a hill or something like that and dex is always <laughs> like oh, man i can't push this thing any harder and <laughs> but the idea is that at some you come to learn that at some point mankind invented uh came up with robots who did all the labor right and this is called the factory age and that at some point the robots gained a type of consciousness where they had a conflict with the with humans right and that there was some resolution it wasn't a war there's just a kind of resolution of the problem that took place which is that the robots and the humans would never interact again right and then the robots would go live in the wilderness away from the cities, which were, you know, as we said, are sort of like these bubble compounds and that there's no interaction between robots and humans at all. Right. What, 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 what do you think the vision that Becky Chambers is is giving of technology here? 
I think it's a really interesting one. There's um, a kind of predecessor novel in a certain way published in the mid-19th century called Erewhon by this guy Samuel Butler. It's nowhere spelled backwards. And it's um, sort of the first novel to worry about um, sort of artificial intelligence or machine intelligence. And basically, this society realizes that technology keeps seeming to evolve and it kind of evolves without... Um, seemingly independent of our, our desires for it. And so um, they sort of cap all technology at like the typewriter or something, I forget, but they they like willfully suppress technology so that there's not like a robot takeover basically. Um, right. And there's something, you know, and, and the novel's very pastoral and there's something about that that strikes me as really resonant with this particular novel. Um, I mean, in some ways there's a lot of sort of Ludditism sprinkled throughout it in the sense that there's like clear limits on technology. And I think that seems to be the main message. It's definitely not that technology is bad insofar as there's a lot of like there's skyscrapers and all sorts of sort of sustainable energy whiz bangs and so on and so forth. Um, And yet at the same time, there's, it's all technology with a kind of purpose, you know? Um, And I guess what the novel strikes me as is neither as a kind of, um, you know, I like Kim Stanley Robinson. Uh, I like him okay, the, the uh, science fiction writer. And he writes a lot about climate. And his novels have a kind of utopian edge. And there's very much like sort of AI and, you know, new technologies and, you know, space colonization and so on. Um, and then on the other hand, you have a lot of, you know, fiction about the environment that goes really hard in the sort of Luddite direction. Um, and this seemed to me to strike a really productive middle ground. And I guess the takeaway I had from it is just kind of the importance of limits, which is what the no- the novel really seems to be about, right? Is that like, you know, we need to be able to have limits on growth and limits on what we want. And I mean, that's even one of the messages with her leaving the city, right? She's dissatisfied with the city. She becomes obsessed. This isn't a spoiler. It starts at the beginning of the novel. She's obsessed with hearing crickets. She realizes she reads about crickets in books or something. And she's, you know, realizes she's never heard one. And so she wants to travel to the wilderness to hear a cricket. Um, But, you know, her, you know, desires are never really realized. Like she never has an epiphany or anything, you know? Um, And the, the takeaway seems to be just, you know, that we need to have limits and make peace with a limited world where there's not perfect happiness and perfect abundance and, you know, limitless growth and so on. Um, Yeah. I don't know. The novel's reasonable, I think, which is a weird way, like a strange word to use to describe a novel, but it's just, it strikes me as just very reasonable. You know, it's kind of like centrist in a weird way. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it is, it is, it is interesting in that the, I think that the, the, and this is the punk part of it, obviously, is that the abiding, the abiding idea behind this book, or if there is a something that is being promoted, I think it is a DIY type of ethic, right? It yeah, is a it is. sense that um, one gains a type of meaning in one's life by doing things themselves, by not relying so much on technology. And that 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 also is a type of individualism, obviously, right? But in the DIY communities, that they reject the individual part of it, and they see it, say that all this should be communal. Um, there are things that Dex believes that do feel very much modern in that type of way, which is like, like I don't know. I was just constantly reminded of uh, the show Alone, which is my favorite show. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe you don't know this, but the only shows I watch are like survival reality. I read, yeah, you wrote about Alone. I read it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I read yeah, it. Really <laughs> it was basically just. Um, but those people are people who think constantly about their impact on the world, right? And in ways that I think at 
times can be quite narcissistic, but you know, the idea, oh, I'm not going to eat any meat unless I kill it. Right. And mm -hmm. um, there are all these great shows where I don't, I can't tell if they're doing it for the camera or not, because at the beginning they always do this. And by the time they're starving, they don't, but they, uh, you know, they will kill a squirrel or they'll kill a mouse. Right. And they'll eat the mouse and they'll say, thank you, little mouse for all the energy that you're giving to me. <laughs> That's kind of how Dex struck me. Right. Totally. That, that there is this like, we must be in harmony and that there is some sort of that there is something satisfying about that harmony and that even though the book is propelled forward by Dex's great dissatisfaction with all with with their surroundings at most times that that we don't really believe the dissatisfaction because it has no real source, as you said. Right? It's just that this is somebody who is restless, right, which is fine. Yeah. Right? Most people are restless for no reason. I count myself amongst those yeah, yeah. people. But um, I I actually found it to be quite comforting vision on the world and something it reminded me of not just sim city but was like the you know do you know what a cozy video game is are you are you familiar i've with heard the term yeah yeah it's like a animal crossing is a version of oh yeah yeah farming games and um the idea is that there's no there's no point right there's no you're not off to kill the boss you're not off to slay the demon you're not off to uh amass as much money as you can right that those are generally the through lines of video games you're not trying to get the most experience points so that you can have the best sword so that you know you fight something and you can kill it more easily right like that's sort of the gamification uh narrative that these are more just like oh you're gonna water your plants right <laughs> you're yeah, gonna yeah. you're gonna sell your crops you're gonna become friends with the other person at the next farm maybe there's a little bit of romance there. Are you going to marry the person who lives in the yeah, next yeah. farm, right? That this was the novel version of that. And I actually, I don't like cozy video games. My wife plays them, but uh -huh. uh, I don't personally like them because I just get so bored. Yeah. Yeah. But I feel like this is the novel version of it. It made me think of something I wanted to respond to, which was that a lot of the apocalypse future visions that we have are not through literature and movies anymore, right? Like they're mm -hmm. through video games. Um, That's a great this point. Felt yeah. Like a video game, a book that was so influenced by video games that I found it actually interesting in that type of way. Because it wasn't like, you know, it wasn't like a book based off a video game, right? Mm -hmm. But it was it was the sort of thinking that that is in a lot of these cozy video games turn into a novel. Yeah, that's really interesting, man. Um, I, I definitely hadn't thought about it that way. And I mean, I always describe the book and then I have to explain that I mean this in a good way, but it's like a warm bath, you know? And, and that's not to right. say it's like stupid or like trash, like watching like Law and Order SVU all weekend, you know, or something like that. It's like, it's good. It's just, yeah, cozy is like a really good word for it. And I also see what you mean about the, I have a lot of, you know, friends that play Animal Crossing and cozy video games and stuff. And I think, yeah, I think that's like a great description. Um, and I think it works because it's short, you know, like I would find this book tiresome if it was like two or 300 pages, but it's like 150 pages. It like punches above its weight, I think within that space and it doesn't overstay its welcome. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I, um, I, I always, uh, I teach as a palate cleanser actually is what I refer to it as. I teach. Do your students you know, like it? They do. Yeah. And I mean, I teach um, one course called climate fiction, which is just about climate change literature, mostly dystopian sci-fi. And then I teach another course called extinction, um, which is about sort of representations of extinction in the history of science, but also literature. And um, 
that course can get really, uh, the extinction one in particular can get really depressing. Like we watch Melancholia and that Bong Joon home fill, uh, Snowpiercer and stuff. Um, and so right. I teach this along with it as like a nice palate cleanser to break up some of the, like, you know, uh, the despair. Yeah, but yeah, 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 yeah. I enjoyed it. Um, I, there is one. I think that the I've, there is a part that is. I think the clearest articulation, and it, it is not in that like this is the author speaking, but it is the idea that I think that the author is wrestling with. Right. So there's a passage I want to read. I think it's the closest we can come to understanding what this is about, or at least what it's. Yeah. It is difficult for anyone born and raised in human infrastructure to truly internalize the fact that your view of the world is backwards. Even if you fully know that you live in a natural world that existed before you and will continue long after, even if you know that the wilderness is a default state of things and that nature is not something that only happens in carefully curated enclaves between towns, something that pops up in empty spaces if you ignore them for a while. Even if you spend your whole life believing yourself to be deeply in touch with the ebb and flow, the cycle, the ecosystem as it actually is, you will still have trouble picturing an untouched world. You will still struggle to understand that human constructs are carved out and overlaid, that these are the places that are the in-between, not the other way around. The reason why I found that to be interesting was just this idea of like, you know, you talked about how there is a type of survivalist, like untouched nature type of idea behind a lot of climate fiction that there is a, well, all human intervention is bad, right? That in fact you need yeah, to do, yeah. and they, you know, it's kind of vaguely stated as a kind of, you know, like a, I think that people's misunderstanding of this, right. It's based on misunderstanding of what native American uh, or indigenous ways of life are, that that does animate a lot of science fiction and, and, and climate fiction. Do you like, do you think that this book is, is part of that tradition? I like the book a great deal. I think there are ways that it occasionally edges into a kind of, um, naivete of a certain sort. I, I don't know how else to put it. And I think that's like kind of part of the coziness of it. Um, but you know, I do think, I mean, part of, um, I think there are ways in which it takes part in that kind of sort of pastoralist kind of back to the land, you know, going out into the great untouched wild tradition. Um, but then there are other ways too. I think it sort of turns it inside out. You know, I mean, the wilderness is really different than she expects when she gets right. there and she finds the sort of remains she thinks she's going to find this sort of untapped wilderness and she finds the remains of previous human cultures and factories and, and so on and so forth. Right. Um, and so I do think it's trying to get at the, you know, some of the ways in which are the way that we imagine untouched wilderness is, is really a construction. I mean, there's a really fantastic essay by this guy, Bill Cronin called the trouble with wilderness. And one of the things he points out is that, you know, we talk about, um, we use the word pristine to describe the wilderness all the time, like the national parks, right? They're pristine. They're untouched reserves of wilderness without people in it. And he points out those are made um, and they were made by genocide. Like we, we, we took people off that land right. and then called it unpeopled. You know what I mean? Um, and I think, there's something like that to this where she you know has this fantasy of crickets and untouched pristine wilderness and then goes and she finds it beautiful but certainly not unspoiled you know um in a certain way so i definitely think it's in dialogue with that kind of you know crunchy green idealist pastoralist tradition of thinking about sort of back to the land stuff um but i also think it's doing something smart with it too. yeah this is not i mean i think there's some interesting parts about this which is that you know the traditional idea behind this story is uh something like hatchet or you know by gary paulson or yeah. my oh, side yeah. of the mountain right that where somebody grows dissatisfied usually a young boy 
right? And in this case, it is mm -hmm. somebody who is non-binary grows very dissatisfied with the sort of hypocrisies and and boredom of of everyday life, and then goes off into the wilderness. You know, into the wild is a similar is a is a is a yeah, real yeah. meditation on that. The John Krakauer book. I I it's something that actually has always been interesting to me as well as you know just a writer, right? Like, what do you do with this mm -hmm. type of vision? Because in some ways it is so vain. Like, there's nothing more vain than the idea that you will find yourself when there are no other people around, right? That there is this innate self that exists that in fact you can find and that you can tap into and this is what will make you happy, right? We don't, like I said before, with the poly everything, I don't believe we have innate selves, right? Like I don't think that there is a self that is always struggling to break free um, from the constraints of humanity. And I think once you start thinking that way, you actually fall into really dangerous types of thinking, right? Surfing, for example, yeah. is overrun by this type of thinking, right? Um, there's two types of surf videos. The first is like a young blonde kid from Huntington Beach or or the North Shore just ripping and there's punk music playing, right? And the guy punts huge airs and does stuff that like only a 16-year-old who's been surfing since the age of two can do. And it's amazing to watch, but it's kind of boring because it's repetitive, right? Yeah, and then there's the wilderness kind of uh, eco-fascist version of what I call eco-fascist, which might be too hard, but I think it's right version of a surf video where they show somebody, usually Rob Machado, who is this long-haired surf guy, um, and they like go. It's a, it's all it all is a version of the endless summer, right? Which is where two kids from California <laughs> go around the world and they find these untouched surf spots where nobody is, right? And yeah. so that version of the surf video is basically uh the ocean has all this cleansing energy and when you're sitting out there we're just having fun man the best surfer is the one that's having the most fun and there's a wave that comes and it starts with a storm and the energy comes and when you ride that wave all that energy from those thousands of miles in the ocean every turtle that it passed right all that energy is conferred into your feet <laughs> And that you finally feel one with the world, right? And that surfing in that way is a very vain activity, I know, because like yeah, it's something yeah. I've spent a lot of my life doing. And that there were periods of time yeah. when I was in my 20s where I really believed in all of this stuff. You know, I would go out to Ocean Beach in San Francisco, which is an unruly beach, and it's hard to get mm -hmm. out, and the waves are big, it's cold, there's sharks everywhere. And that you see, mm -hmm. you start to notice that the people who are out there are kind of all the same. Um, part of a the best surfing book ever written, which is Bill Finnegan's Barbarian Days, is about surfing at Ocean Beach, right? Um, and oh, it's yeah. about how all the people he met out there were these kind of like survivalist type of dudes, you know, who are yeah. only doing it for the vanity of saying the toughest surfers in the world are at Ocean Beach in San Francisco because you're not really supposed to surf here. The world will disappear and it will just be me and the natural elements and that within that I will find who I am, right? And I still find myself yeah. doing that quite a bit when I go surfing. There are moments when I get bored when there are no waves coming or if I'm having a shitty day where I'll start thinking to myself, I, I will actually say the words in my head. It's like, who, like, who am I? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And the thoughts that come after that question are pure drivel, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, it doesn't mean anything. I do a kind of fishing uh, called wetsuiting, which you 
it's mostly at night for striped bass and you swim out to sort of distant offshore rocks and it's often in storms because I bite better in stormy weather. And it's, um, it's like definitely on that continuum <laughs> of, uh, you know, 3am 50 yards offshore on a rock <laughs> yeah. in, a, in a like storm <laughs> trying to figure out how close the lightning is, you know? And so this is something I think about a lot. Cause on the one hand in class to my students, I'm like, ah, I mean this, you know, wilderness bullshit and blah, blah, blah. And then on the other hand, you know, the night before I was out till 4am on some godforsaken spit of land. <laughs> you know? So I don't know. I think about this a lot and it's, um, uh, but I don't think, you know, and, and even in, uh, as you can imagine, the kind of people who do that are often fucking people who are insane, you know, and I mean, the season is kind of short at six months. Um, most people who fish, who wetsuit seriously are out four or five days or nights rather a week. Um, so, I mean, particularly if it's around one of the moons when the fish are really biting, you're on three hours of sleep on four days. And, you know, at a certain point, the moon starts looking funny colors and you have like weird thoughts, right, right. you know, about like, what the fuck am I doing out here? But there's no like, you know, enlightenment to be had from it. It's just, it's really fun. And the fish are big and, you know, there's, the ocean is cool. Well, wait, you know? wait, so, so you yeah, swim out to like a rock and you, you, what, what, and it's in Maine? What, I mean, I don't, we used to go, yeah, we went uh, fishing for striped bass a lot. Oh, really? And yeah. so you're wearing, what, you're wearing like a five millimeter wetsuit or something like that and you're out. Yeah, I wear a five in June um, and then October and then from like June uh, or July rather through September, um, I'm in a four, three usually. Oh my God. That is, uh, it's really fun. It sounds uh, so fun. I, mean, I want to do it. Dude, I'm gonna come fun. out I mean, to Maine. We'll Maine, do it. we have a lot of white sharks, but it's not. There's like not. It's not that bad. But in like Montauk and Cape Cod and shit, I know some people who do it out there, and like they're swimming to sandbars off Cape Cod and or like P Town. You, you have know? to do it at <laughs> night. Like that sounds. That sounds yeah, oh yeah, terrifying. Yeah. Do you have like a light with you or something like that, or do you just? Yeah, but um, you don't want to have your light on too much, both because other people can see it, and uh, also you know fish can see it. Um, but yeah, I mean, so you're mostly in the dark. You're mostly not using a light. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's like, it, it is super, uh, it's it's super fun. Um, but yeah, I don't know. So I struggle with that because I do think the like rugged individualism, macho, he-man wilderness thing is, you know, is preposterous. But then, you know, I don't know. And it's funny, if you talk to people who do it, like it does sound like it would be like macho cretins. Um, but if you talk to anyone who does it, like everyone will say they're scared the whole time. You know, like I was talking to a, I was talking to a guy the other day uh, and he was like, I mean, when I'm like swimming out to a rock at 2 a.m., he's like, I like I recite my like grocery list. He's like, he's like, and then you're like, should I swim faster or should I like, can they smell fear? You know? So, I, 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 oh, my God. Yeah. You know what? That actually sounds like something I want to try because. Um, yeah, yeah. Well, if you ever come out. No, there, I will. I, sure. You know, it'll be uh, I I don't. I, 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 I think that anyway, just to, wow. The, honestly, it sounds terrifying. Like what happens if you get swept in a current or something like that? You just die. I mean, like nobody can see gonna, you, right? Yeah. Like, is it, is it pretty protected yeah. areas and stuff like that? No, 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 no. Um, but I mean, you just have to know the currents. Like I, any rock I'm going to swim to, I've swam during the day with gear on before. Um, and it's not usually far. Like some people in uh, like uh, Long Island, Montauk are swimming, you know, 50 to 100 yards. Most of my swims are pretty short um, where my like feet are actually off the ground. Uh, but yeah, I mean, you ha you just have to know where the currents are. I mean, Maine is tricky because uh, we have 10 foot yeah, plus tides. Yeah. And so, yeah, so you have to like 
you know, know the tides real well. You need to know the wind. Like there's one spot I fish that is safe on every wind, but a Northwest wind. And if you get a Northwest wind, the waves double in size because they're hitting right. this rock in a particular way. So, I mean, you really have to, uh, you got to have it wired, No, but that's, that's half the, that's half yeah, the fun of it. I mean, yeah. It's like wiring. Yeah, and most wired. people who do it are like safe. Like people don't die regularly, but it also self-selects, I think for people who are like very, uh, like, you do all the research. Yeah, and, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. It's that type. It's a yeah. very specific type of person. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah, interesting. Yeah. They used to surfing around here used to be like that, where it was all like dudes who would read buoy, buoy charts and stuff like that. And you know, the great the pandemic basically democratized and the wave storm, which is a three hundred dollar board you can order on the internet that's made out of foam and is mm-hmm. actually quite pleasant to ride. It, it sort of democratized surfing in a way where a lot more people do it. And I will say that it's better, like the world is better. Like you see a lot more women out there. You see a lot more different types of people Mm -hmm. out in the water, but there's just more people, period. And so that makes you a little bit salty. But um, but it used to be that around here, like, you know, it would be like dudes standing on the dunes at Ocean Beach for an hour trying to figure out the one place where the wave is. And now everything is on camera, right? That you can access and yep. you can see. And like, I yeah. use those cameras for fishing. Actually. <laughs> really? The surfline photo, the surfline camera. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I have all the surfing apps. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. All right. Uh, that's, we should do an entire episode on that. I, that is like really, I, 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 I'm fascinated by it. I want to try it. We, we used to, when I lived in, Dude, when I went to Bowdoin, we used to fish for um striped bass off our dock because we lived on this weird tidal island that was about an hour outside of campus but um but yeah yeah, i I was not particularly good at it but it sounds fun um all right well i think that's uh um yeah you know what that was a good diversion because i realized that i don't really have much else to say about the book the um outside of the fact that i think it is nice that this type of vision exists Okay, thank you for listening to the show. Uh, as always, if you'd like to support us, which we greatly, greatly appreciate, it's $5 a month at goodbye.substack.com or at patreon.com TTSG. If you would like to get in touch with us in any type of way, it is time to say goodbye pod at gmail.com or you can reach out. I don't really check the Twitter very much, but you know you can send a DM there at, at TTSG. Thank you until next week.